All right, we're in Isaiah 6 this morning. From time to time, there are events that happen in the world, in the nation, that I, I, when I'm somewhere in the midst of sermon prep, and it was, of course, Wednesday night this week that, that Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, and, and there are those moments when you pause in your sermon prep and wonder, is, is this the right direction to go for this week? Because you also realize that it's a terrifying event, terrifying for the, the, the people who are in country there, but also enormous connections because so much of our community is, is military and, and so there's particular ties there. And so I, I, I did, I paused briefly and I thought about this passage and prayed about it and went back again to Isaiah 6. And, and I think as is so often the case, it is, it is so true that God's word as it promises to be is living and active. And, and I, I just was struck in going through Isaiah 6 how absolutely relevant it is to where we are today on February 27th, 2022. And so we are going to continue this. But I, let me help you set the stage for why that just caught my attention as I was thinking about it this week. It's really the first line of Isaiah 6, the first phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died. We've talked a little bit about the history behind Isaiah, and King Uzziah was ascended to the throne at the age of 16, reigned for about 52 years over the nation of Judah. So he's in Jerusalem, he's reigning over the, the country of Judah, um, and, and for a very long time, Uzziah was a good king. Isaiah did things that were commendable. And so we looked at this the very first week. I just want to refresh it again. Second Chronicles 26.5, Uzziah set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. The, the as long as is the key part of that. But I, I just want you to think for a moment. Uzziah did a lot of things under the, the, the work of God that were good for the nation of Judah not the least of which was providing protection by, by building up the military, almost to the, the heyday of David. I mean, almost bringing it back to where it once was so that, so that Judah was protected and safe. Second Chronicles 26 goes on to talk about um, Hezekiah doing sort of, we would call them infrastructure projects, aqueducts and other things that were good for farming and were good for the community. And so he was a man in whom God placed a great deal of wisdom and favor, and a lot of what happened under Uzziah's leadership was good for the nation of Judah. But then we know, and we talked about this the first week, Uzziah became proud. And Uzziah began to take credit for things that only should have been credited back to God, but he began to act like all of this prosperity was somehow his work to the point that he then entered the temple and decided to try to take on a priestly role, which was not his. He was not of the, the Levites. And so he began to act like a priest and God strikes him with leprosy and Uzziah spends the very last days of his reign largely in isolation and shame with leprosy and his son Jotham takes over the, the, the sort of daily leadership of the nation. That aside for a second, despite Uzziah's not ending well, he reigned during years of prosperity and blessing. For many of the Jewish people, he was the only king they ever knew. Imagine one ruler for 52 years. That, that was the guy they knew. And if if we believe as we do, and, and, and we see some scriptural precedent for this, that one of the primary roles of government is to provide protection for its people, that it bears the sword in doing that. Uzziah did that well. Uh, Judah, at a time when the Assyrian Empire was this growing threat, 
Uzziah did a, a reasonably good job at being king. And so when you come to verse one of chapter six and it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, it's fair to say that there was mourning and probably even some measure of uncertainty for that nation, that, that things were now changing. And 25-year-old Jotham was stepping in, who nobody was really sure exactly how he would serve as king and whether he would carry on in the way that his dad did. And so this, this moment of Isaiah 6.1 is signaling for us this crossroads in Judah's history. What's going to happen next? Who, who is this guy that's in charge now? Will we stay safe? Can he be trusted? Is he strong? And all of the questions that would naturally go through a nation's mind when there is a change of leadership after five decades of one king serving. I think, then, Isaiah 6 is a profound message of hope, both to the remnant of God's people at that time, but by application to you and I. As we live at this time of chaos and crisis and evil in the world, it is a reminder of a couple of things about God that I think you're going to see attributes of God that are so important for us to understand. And so what I want to walk through this morning is really focus in on the two attributes of God that, that seem to come to the forefront in this chapter, God's sovereignty and God's holiness and how knowing and believing those things equips us to faithfully serve him. Because at the end of this chapter, we get to a commission for service for Isaiah. And it is a, it is a grasp of sovereignty and holiness that helps to, to ground Isaiah for service in a very uncertain, chaotic time. Let me read the first four verses just to get us started thinking about this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. It's one of the most remarkable and, and perhaps even familiar scenes in Scripture. Many of us have read this before. We know from Isaiah 1.1 that Isaiah is receiving a, a vision from God. And so he is being made to see things about Judah's condition and, and about the future. And so what he's being made to see here now is to see and experience an encounter with the living God, with the holy God in the temple. Now, that word for temple could mean either the, the temple in Jerusalem, in which case the veil is gone and the Ark of the Covenant has been replaced by this throne and, and God Almighty. It could also mean a palace, so the idea of, of a vision of God in his heavenly throne room. At a, at a time of potential upheaval for Judah, at a time when the, the future feels at least a little uncertain, about what's going to happen with leadership. Isaiah is given the vision of a throne and a king who is unlike any other. And so, yeah, there's kings, there's Uzziah, and there's Jotham, and there's Ahaz, there's all sorts of earthly rulers. Isaiah is being shown the one who is ruling over all. This is the great one. This is the exalted one who is high above all things. 
We know this in our English translations. When we see that word Lord, it, it's generally printed in, in, in two different ways. There's Lord where it's all in capital letters, L-O-R-D. So you see that in verse three, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, is the Yahweh, that is his name, that is the, the covenant keeping self-existent God. Yahweh is his name and the, the great I am. But then we also see that there are times when it is a capital L and lowercase O-R-D as it is in verse one. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne and it's Adonai, which really gets to the idea of a title for him, of master, of, of supreme one, of the one who is the sovereign ruler. He is unmatched in his authority. And so Isaiah begins in, in describing his vision by saying he is seeing the ruler above everything. If there was any question about what was happening next for Judah and who the king might be, Isaiah was now assured, Lord is on his throne. Almighty God is exalted and here is the great king. Jerusalem was filled, we know, with with leaders and judges and people of authority because we've read about them in the first five chapters and those who abused their authority and who claimed greatness and who claimed to be exalted. And Isaiah 6 is showing us that God is declaring without dispute that he alone is the sovereign one. He is the one who rules over all and there is no room here for a small diminished view of who God is. There is none like him. He is the greatest, and Isaiah is seeing him in his throne room with the heavenly host surrounding him and is being reminded of his sovereignty. As the Lord himself declares later in Isaiah 66, verse 1, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. We will get, as we go on through this chapter, a very direct example of God's sovereignty down in verses 9 through 12, but we'll come back to that. The attribute of God, when we come to Isaiah 6, that if, if, if most people are asked what attribute of God is the focal point of Isaiah chapter 6, we almost all would say holiness. It is the holiness of God. And certainly that is a, that is a critical point here because around God's heavenly throne is this heavenly host. The, these beings, and they are praising Yahweh, and they are focusing on this one attribute in particular about him. The Lord is mighty, and he is just, and he is loving, and he is kind, but the point that God wants us to see here in this vision from Isaiah is that he is holy. He is distinct. He is above. He is other, if you will. That's all the idea of that word holy. It shows up about 700 times in the Bible, and most of the references are to God, but there's also references to his holy city, his holy temple, his holy mountain, his holy land. The idea of something that is set apart. Followers of, of Jesus Christ are instructed in 1 Thessalonians to greet the brethren with a holy kiss, a kind of a greeting that is distinct from that of the world. We are described, in fact, as God's holy people. But there are only two places in Scripture where you see this threefold repetition of this particular attribute. The one is here and the other is in Revelation 4. And it's similar to the, the passage that Ryan read at the start in Revelation chapter 7, where it's this scene of God in his heavenly thr throne room, and he is surrounded by heavenly beings, and they are declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Setting again the idea that he is distinct 
beyond all measure. The idea of a, that, that the threefold repetition is really a linguistic tool to, to do what we would do by putting it in all caps or underlining it or putting the exclamation point. It is to say this is holy to a magnitude that is the greatest of magnitudes. This is a, a separateness, a set-apartness, and unlike any otherness, unlike anything that you're familiar with. This is just so unique, and God is Holy, holiness is that attribute that so often causes man to fall back as he begins to encounter the living God. And 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16 describes God as the blessed and holy sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. We wrestle there because we've seen Moses has gotten a glimpse. Isaiah is now describing this vision, and yet... There is this description in, in Timothy of Paul saying, he dwells in unapproachable light. It is a, a way of trying to help us grasp the, what it is in the holiness of God that just causes us to, to, to be in awe. Because what sets him apart is not simply his greatness as creator, and that's unique. He's creating. We, we don't, and so that sets him apart. It's not merely the fact that he is the sustainer who preserves all of this universe or that he is sovereign and rules over all of it. Those things are all true. But what sets Yahweh above all else here in Isaiah 6 is his absolute moral purity and perfection. It is the attribute of God that the the unbelieving world is most often driven back by and that they despise. The idea that there is a distinct, sinless creator who says to man, you are sinful and you need to be, your, your sin needs to be atoned for so that you might be right with me because your sin separates you. Uh, the world will do all it can to try to explain away God as creator or sustainer, but it is this idea that, that there is this massive gap between me and my sin and God who is sinless and holy. That so comes through to us here in Isaiah chapter 6. It's the holiness of God, the Son. That's why Peter, when he, he first begins in, in Luke to get this glimpse of, of the identity of this one who says, go drop your net there. And suddenly there's fish overflowing where there weren't just a moment ago. And there's this awareness on Peter's part so that he says, go away from me, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's not just, I don't know how you did that. That was amazing. You're more powerful than I am. I don't know how you knew to fish there. It, his, his recognition was, I am sinful and I am in the presence of holiness, the holiness of God. And so like Peter and like Isaiah, you and I are sinners and nothing exposes our guilt more or brings to us a sense of conviction of our sin than exposing ourselves to a larger and larger view of God, understanding his holiness and his righteousness and seeking to, to see him in this way. And Isaiah is helping us to do that. Let me read again verse four. It says, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, Lord of hosts. 
the, the, the hymn of the seraphim, the calling back and forth, the holy, holy, holy is so thunderous that as Isaiah is presumably standing in the doorway of the throne room or the temple, it is beginning to shake. The threshold is shaking as just the sound is reverberating in there and he is just in awe. And it says smoke filled the room. Maybe one equivalent we've got is during the time of Moses, the smoke that was over the mountain, the, the fiery um, smoke that was over the mountain, but then also the leading of the, the Israelites from out of Egypt and to the promised land, the cloud that leads them by day and the pillar of fire by night. I, it, it, there's a sense in which I, I think the, the smoke in the temple somewhat spares Isaiah from a full-on unbearable vision of God in all of his holiness. It's almost like a, like a screen in some sense so that Isaiah can see what he sees and be in awe. He's in rare company, right, at this moment to see this. The, again, the closest equivalent we've got previously is, is Moses, but, but here's the interesting thing is Isaiah does not respond to this as, as we might, our generation might nowadays, and be like, oh, look at this. This is really cool. I'm getting to see what only, like only Moses sort of got a glimpse of before. Far from privilege, Isaiah's response is to be devastated. He is just completely stopped. We know from, from what we've read previously that, that he will use that word woe time and time again as he is pronouncing God's judgment on the sin of the people. Alas, grief, a word that tries to capture the sense of, of, of sadness and loss and despair. And here he says, woe is me. Isaiah has been just laid bare. It's as if his life has now been put on display before God. And, and the interesting thing is he's, he's not silenced. He speaks, but his speaking is simply to, to simply declare his own condition. I am ruined. The, the ESV says, I am lost. It's the idea of, a, of something that causes something else to cease. I am stopped. I am cut off. I am nothing in the presence of infinite holiness. It, it is just a, a sense for Isaiah that now that he has seen the living God, all that he can recognize is that he is a sinner who cannot stand before this God. He has no place being in front of this God, and he says, I am ruined. As one commentator points out, Isaiah it does not even join in with the, the chorus of the heavenly host in praising God because all he can see in that moment is the glaring reality of God who is distinct and holy above all and I who am a sinner and who do not deserve to stand before him. It's not just the fact that it's a human standing before deity. It's not just the fallible in the presence of the infallible. It is as if that unapproachable light of God's holiness is now shining on Isaiah and all he can see is that his uncleanness has been exposed. And in particular for Isaiah, this, this one thing is what stands out. Isaiah knows himself to be someone who speaks sinfully. All Isaiah can, can think of in that moment is all of that that stuff that's come out of his mouth that is a reflection of his heart that was wrong or unloving or crude or unnecessary. And, and, and he is broken by this. 
So much that has rolled off his lips he knows is displeasing to God, and that is just what is breaking him at this point. He says, I'm like in grief because God, God knows not only my words, but the heart behind those words. And, and I have spoken sinfully and foolishly, and I am surrounded by a people who have spoken evilly against God and have rebelled against him with their words, and we are guilty, and we don't even deserve to stand here. Now that I have seen the king, the one who is sovereign, the one who is holy, I am undone. But there's something else I think that's really interesting about Isaiah's response. First, we might think this is obvious, but, but compare it to yourself, there's no excuses. Isaiah, in recognizing himself as someone who sins by his words, does not pause in that moment and go, God, I know what you're thinking, but if you knew my kids, if you knew my spouse, if you knew my, you'd understand why I say the things I say. There's none of that. It's just, I, I am ruined. But the, the, the thing that's even striking beyond that is there is no plea for even mercy on Isaiah's part. This is, this is a sense of just utter hopelessness. He has been confronted by the holiness of God and the reality of his own sin. And in Isaiah's mind, it would appear at this moment that there is no possibility for somehow these two to come together. How do you bridge that gap? And so there's no plea for God to even act, which is what makes the next couple of verses all the more astounding as a display of God's grace. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, look, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Okay, remember this theme. We keep coming to it in Isaiah. God's judgment is real. Man's sin deserves God's wrath. And so when God speaks of judgment for sin, it is true and it is right, but it is not God's final word. Even in this moment, when Isaiah has come to the end and said, I am ruined, I am lost, I am done, is not God's final word. And God purifies him. He provides the means by which Isaiah can be delivered from this state of uncleanness. Fire is often used to, in these sorts of, uh, um, sort of settings, this idea of something that, that even can cleanse by destroying. It, it just burns up that which is bad, that which is dross. And here it's God using it to, to figuratively abolish Isaiah's sin. Later when we get to Isaiah 33, the prophet reminds us something Moses told the people about God in Deuteronomy 4 when he says, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. We need to keep coming back to getting this sense of God's holiness because it helps us to understand our sin rightly. He has wrath toward sin, toward all sin. It is a consuming fire. And so the notion that we might say, well, it's just a little sin or it's not sin that's as bad as that sin or it's not the kind of sin that I used to do and it's better sin and that's, that doesn't work. God despises our sin and he judges it entirely. He is a consuming fire. It was necessary. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, it was necessary for all of your sin 
to be accounted to Jesus Christ, to be put on him so that in him the wrath of God might punish all of your sins so that you might receive the righteousness of Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, the one who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin, took our sin upon himself so that we might become the righteousness of God. We should also note this hole that the seraphim takes with the tongue. I want to equate just a little bit like to when we talk about the bread and the cup at the communion service. The, the, the coal is not the, is not the deciding factor in all of this. It was not the burning coal that, that purified Isaiah. It is what the burning coal symbolizes that provides true atonement for Isaiah's sin. And so just in the same way that that coal looks forward to an atonement for sin that must be made, a sacrifice for sin that must be made, so our cup and our bread look back to that sacrifice. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ. That is the death of Jesus Christ. That is what ultimately provides forgiveness of sin. But the coal here is, is God's way of saying, your sin must be atoned for. It must be met, and, and, and my wrath against it must be satisfied. And that is done in Christ. Verse 8, then. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, here... I am, send me. You talk about grace. Isaiah was, was not only not banished from the presence of God, which in the midst of the thunderous shaking of the thresholds and the reality of God's holiness, Isaiah's got to be fully anticipating, this is, this is over, I'm done. So he not only is not banished from the presence of God, but he is reconciled to God by virtue of this atoning work to the point that he can now hear God's voice and respond to it. Amen. Affirmatively say, yes. Remember when Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and, and they fled. They, they didn't want to get anywhere near his presence. Isaiah has been made right. And he now can hear God and say, I will. Whom shall I send? It, one thing, just sort of an aside, verse 8. We sometimes, on verse 8, it says, the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? We talk about the Trinity here. This is probably not the best verse to argue the idea that God exists in three persons, one God, three persons. There, there are better verses, I would say to you. And I think in context, this could also be rightly taken as God speaking here in his throne room with the heavenly hosts surrounding him and, and, and saying that he will go for, for us in terms of this, this message that will go out. But when you get the person that wants to argue the Trinity with you or understand it more, I would suggest to you it's implied, if not explicit here, Implied in two ways. This passage comes up twice in the New Testament. One is in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 12, and it uses Isaiah 6.10, which we'll get to in just a moment in that context. But John 12.41, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of Jesus and spoke of him. I don't know how, as a preacher of the word, to explain that as to how, how, what Isaiah saw and how that looked, but in some way, the Holy Word of God says Isaiah was getting a sense for the Son of God in that moment. And, and Acts chapter 28 says that it was the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah who said Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. So the New Testament writers did see the Trinity involved in this whole scene, and so there is that as well. But in context, I think what we really need to see is the response of Isaiah, that he has been delivered and he has been reconciled. And he is eager to say, yes, 
send me. This was not a, this was not a compelled, forced sort of exercise on God's part to force Isaiah to do this. He didn't specifically say it to Isaiah. He said, who will go? This wasn't one of those deals with God. If I do this, then if you do this, God, then I'll, I'll do this. I'll serve you. It wasn't even that. This was simply Isaiah saw his broken, sinful life reflected against the holiness of God and, and experienced God mercifully cleansing him. And all Isaiah wants to do at this point is show his gratitude to God. Yes, I will go. I will go. And then he's given the commission, which is troubling. Verse 9. God says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You may have in the past heard an Isaiah 6 sermon that that stopped with the here am I, send me, because it's really good right up until that point, man. We have seen the holiness of God. We have seen the purifying work of God, the call of God, the response, here am I, send me. This is wonderful. And then you get down to verses 9 and 10, and it's like, what? The commission that God gives to Isaiah seems baffling. You will go and preach, and your preaching will serve as a way of further hardening the hearts of those who hear. Now, this would be even more confusing were it not for chapters one through five. One of the things I said to you at the very beginning was this, this doesn't flow in a nice linear fashion. We're getting God's call of Isaiah where we would normally expect this to be chapter one. But instead, we've had the introduction in chapters one through five that have reminded us that the, the, the setting is Judah's sin, God's wrath, and yet the hope and the promise that there is something more to come. And we've seen that cycle repeated in chapters 1 through 5. We've been reminded that there is widespread evil in Judah. There is, there is dishonesty. There is taking advantage of people. There is callousness. There is idolatry. Judah's a mess. And God has promised judgment. But he's also promised that there will be repentance and righteousness, and, and the nations will, will stream to this place to hear about the God of Jacob, and a branch of the Lord will appear and will be glorious, and there will be fruit, so there is hope. But at this moment, in the year that King Uzziah died, as Isaiah is being called into service, his prophetic ministry is to a nation that is full on in rebellion against their Lord. There is no sense of gratitude for how the sovereign has been gracious to them and provided for them. The city has, has trusted in its own strength and its own resources. The people have become arrogant and hard-hearted. And God is now going to use Isaiah's message to be one of wrath and judgment. That, rather than turning them in repentance, will only cause them to grow further away from him and from his call. Throughout God's dealings with man, there have always been false teachers who preach the very opposite of what Isaiah preaches. God, God loves you. He wants to give you stuff. He wants to bless you. It's, it's, it's just an all good message. It's an all winning message and nothing about sin. We don't, just don't talk about sin or bad stuff, right? That's what false teachers thrive on. It's the kind of message that the audience says, well, that sounds good. 
That sounds like a, a prosperous message, message that I want to embrace. And yet throughout the scriptures, 1 Kings 22, the king of Israel describes one of the prophets that he hates. And he says, because he never prophesies good concerning me, only evil. He only says bad stuff to me about my sin. I want, I want a prophet who's going to come and tell me what a good king I am. Jeremiah says the same kind of thing in Jeremiah 6, that these false prophets and priests are essentially putting useless band-aids on the country because they are preaching peace, peace, when he says there is no peace. Stop listening to these fools who are telling you that all is well. It's not because of your sin. And the New Testament version of this is 2 Timothy 4.3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Preach what I want to hear. Tell me about how good I am and how good my life can be and all the stuff that God has for me. Isaiah is called to preach the truth. And it will be a message of the people's sin and rebellion and of God's wrath. And it will drive them even further. One commentator put it this way, Yahweh is looking for someone to declare judgment on this polluted people. The judgment will take the form of telling them they're never going to understand what God is saying to them and doing with them. Indeed, the aim of Isaiah's preaching is to bring about that incomprehension so that they won't repent and find healing. Is that troubling at all? It, it, it should cause us to pause, but here's what it should not cause us to do is to try to twist it somehow, to try to downplay it, to try to rewrite it, to say, well, this, this, this must mean something else because that, that, that's not a loving God. This is a God who is just. And one aspect of God's judgment on Judah's sin is a kind of spiritual blinding. They will hear Isaiah's preaching. It will not be incomprehensible. It will be spoken to them in their language. And it will be clear in that sense, but the outcome of it will be harder hearts, deaf ears, and blind eyes. And if there's any uncertainty about that, in verse 10, when he says, hearts dull, ears heavy, and blind their eyes, dull, heavy, and blind are all verbs, and they're all imperatives, which means these, these are all, this is commanded. Isaiah, this is, this is what you will, what will be the fruit of your ministry. Your speaking will have that effect, an inevitable part of God's judgment on the people's sin. Which leads Isaiah to a question that any of us might ask at that point. How long? How long, Lord? Verse 11, then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. How long? Here's the thing I just want you to see in his response. You take verses 9 and 10. Isaiah, this is what you've been commissioned to. It is going to harden their hearts and make their hearing heavy and their eyes dull. They will not be able to, to see this, hear this. They will not repent. I don't know about you, but humanly, my reaction at this point is probably, oh, come on. <laughs> Can I preach something else? Can't we do something else with this? But the sweetness of his response is, then I said, how long, O Adonai? How long, Master? There, there is not a fleeing from the sovereignty of God in this. That's why I brought that, that up to you in the very beginning, that, that one of the attributes that is so at focus here 
is Isaiah's appreciation of the fact that God is master. And if this is God's design, all that Isaiah wants to know is, are there any, is there any time frame to this? What, how does this look in the long term? Because he is fully trusting. This is your plan. And he's not arguing with God on this. He simply wants to know what's ahead. And God's answer points forward to what we're going to read in Isaiah in the, the coming weeks, and that is the judgment by the army of Assyria. And, and, and the message that the Assyrians will come and they will, they will destroy and they will remove people. And so you see that pictured in these verses when it says cities lie waste, no inhabitants, the land is desolate, the Lord removes people far away. We know the Assyrian practice was you come in and you take the people and when you exile them, you take them to other lands so that you now dilute their ability to communicate and get along and rise up in any kind of way to oppose you. And, and, and so God is prophesying, this is what will happen, Isaiah, as, as a consequence of the people's sin. And this is how long it will be. It will be until my judgment is carried out against the nation of Judah. It will be, it will be the purifying work of God. Just as Isaiah needed that experience of being purified, what God is doing, and this is not only judgment, but the path to the healing of the land and the people cannot come through a shortcut. It still must go through the fire of destruction. There still must be refining. And that's what he's picturing here because, because it's not over. Because you see the last line in verse 13. Amen. The holy seed is its stump. I want you to picture if you've ever watched a, uh, a TV series and you know, there's, there's three or four seasons to it and you are coming to the end of season one and it's the last episode in season one. You know this is the cliffhanger episode that's gonna wanna make you come back to season two. And you have watched this episode and, and it is, it's coming to the end, credits about to roll. You've looked at your DVR and it says there's a minute and a half left, so this is wrapping up and it just looks like it's over. I can see it. This is all just destruction and final, and I can't see anything good about this. And then all of a sudden, the camera will zoom in on, on some person whose finger twitches or some letter that's found or some image that makes you go, oh, wait a minute. There's something else here. Now I'll have to watch season two, right? Because something else is happening. Can I suggest to you that if, if, if we could sort of imagine this, Isaiah 6 is ending with this camera that is panning out on this desolate land. The trees are chopped down. What hasn't been burned is just lying desolate. It is a wasteland. And it looks hopeless. And, and, and just like Isaiah, I am ruined. R roll the credits, the end. This is done. I am finished. Nothingness. And then all of a sudden this line comes in and says, the holy seed is its stump. And the camera suddenly picks up this stump from a fallen tree. And there's something in that stump that says, it's not over yet. There's still life. God's got work to do here. Think of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones and that vision of these dead bones laying all throughout that valley. And what does God do? He breathes into it and those bones come to life and they live. And it's here at the end of Isaiah 6 that God says, I'm not done. We know, and we're gonna see this as we go on through Isaiah, that, that seed, that, that seed is pointing us toward their hope. There is one coming who will save his people from their sin. There is a remnant that will be delivered through all of this and there will be life and there will be hope and God has not finished his work. 
So here's how I want to just tie this together for you as we think about these, these things that we've said this morning. First thing is sovereignty of God. The Lord Adonai is the sovereign ruler over his creation. There are judges and there are rulers and there are kings and there are presidents and all sorts of people. There is only one who raises them up. They are only kings and authorities because God has raised them up. And he is the same one who lowers them in his time. He is the sovereign king. So whether it's King Uzziah's death in 740 BC that might have shocked the nation of Judah, or it is a terrible, saddening war that we're watching unfold in 2022, the word of God is here to remind us that none of it will overturn the good and wise plan of Adonai. He is Lord. And so if we are, if we are going to be faithful in serving him, as Isaiah is called to do, it is crucial that we often look to get that image of that king who is high and lifted up, that we remember above all of these circumstances and this chaos and everything in my world and the world around that seems a mess, to see the Lord sitting on his throne and to know that he is good and his plan is good and we can trust him and serve him faithfully. The Lord Yahweh is perfect in holiness. He is pure and sinless. Amen. God is separate, and yet, if you are believing in Jesus Christ this morning, if you are trusting in him, him as Savior, then the, the, the call in the New Testament is to be holy as he is holy. We are actually called by the teaching of his word and the empowering of his spirit to imitate that holiness. Now, we fall short. We're still struggling in the flesh on this side of eternity. But the reality is that that holiness has been set before us, not only to show us the distinctness, uh, distinctiveness of God, but also to say to us, now you are called to be a chosen people who act in holiness, who are different from the world around you. And we are called to the imitation of that, which means, as Isaiah did, seeing our sin for what it is, not not playing it down, not excusing it, not blame shifting it, not, not acting like it's just some little thing that it's sorry, but you know, that's the way it is. No, it is our sin. And we need to see it in the light of the holiness of God and desperately ask him for help in putting to death the deeds of the flesh. First Peter says it well in First Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We need to keep encountering the holiness of God because we need to keep encountering our words and our lies and our lusts and our hypocrisies and our anger and all of the things that we need to see and we need to confess and we need to be continually repenting of and knowing that God is gracious and just to forgive us and cleanse us. That is part of our faithful service in a world that desperately wants to say, you're just like me, you, you do all these terrible things, you're no different. And if we are gonna demonstrate, at least show them a glimpse of the holiness of God, it will be because we have come face to face with his holiness and we are willing to confront our own sinfulness and repent of that. Last thing I would say from this, just by way of application, is just Isaiah's example of being faithful in service no matter what the cost or outcome. Isaiah is given a ministry that is by all earthly terms, a failure. You're gonna go and you are gonna preach to this sinful, arrogant people and they will grow harder in their sin and arrogance to the point that they will experience the wrath of God. Oh, wow, that's, that's an agenda. No revival, 
No people coming at the door and saying, great message, Isaiah. Can, 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 you, can you help me with this? No. No, just go away, Isaiah. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Can I suggest to you that any preacher, any teacher, any Bible study leader, any of you who have had the privilege of teaching God's word to somebody who welcomed it and received it, have experienced a kind of joy that many of the prophets rarely, if ever, experienced. Yes. The privilege I get to stand before you this morning and, and, and to preach God's word to people who are eagerly saying, show me what's in God's word. Isaiah trusted in God's sovereignty. I got to believe that somewhere in there, there's, there's at least a fleshly side that would say, man, that would have been really something to experience. And we get to do that. But I would say to you this, that Isaiah remains faithful to God's call because his trust was not in numbers of followers or how many people said, good job, Isaiah. His trust was that God had called him, that Adonai had said, this is the plan. I am sovereign. They, they will grow harder in their hearts, but you preach and I am holy. And so you be holy and you be different and just be faithful. And in the end, that's what we're called to. We are called to trust that God is sovereign, that he is holy, that he longs to make the final word one of repentance and reconciliation. Just be faithful. Serve him where you are. Proclaim his truth to the people that God puts in your life. Tell them of the joy in Jesus Christ and the hope that there is for their sin to be forgiven. Be faithful. He is good. Let's pray. God, I just pray with my brothers and sisters this morning as we have walked through this passage in Isaiah 6. Uh, it, is, it is on one hand hard for us to, to contemplate all of this. On another hand, we, we can certainly feel a sense of what Isaiah was experiencing in that moment. Lord, you, whenever the, the gospel came to my brothers and sisters here and to myself, it was... It was to a people who were sinful and rebellious with a long track record of sin. And yet in your mercy, you came and you brought your truth and the saving work of your son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from our sin. So Father, we, we pray that you would refresh us with these truths that we have considered today of your authority your rule over creation as we see people suffering so often in our social media timelines we're watching images of suffering and it is gut-wrenching but help us not to lose sight of the fact that the sovereign lord remains on his throne that his plan is good for his people that he is a good and wise God. Lord, also refresh us to continually remember how important holiness is and the fact that you who are distinct and separate above and transcendent over all of creation has now rescued a people for yourself and said, be holy as I am holy. We plead for your help. We plead for your spirit to enable us to obey, to follow after you. 
And Lord, we pray for our church family that we would be faithful in service. Whatever the cost, whatever the outcome, that we would hold out your word and speak your truth and love as Christ did and trust that that faithfulness is what pleases you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, anyone watching online who's saying, you don't know what a mess my life is. You don't know how far I've gone. I make Isaiah look like a a choir boy in comparison, Lord. It is clear from your word that you are a God who holds out forgiveness and grace to all who will come to you, who will acknowledge their sin and trust in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. There is salvation in the name of Jesus. And so I pray today that you would be gracious to save that you would draw to yourself one who feels like they are outside of the throne room and have no way of coming near. And Father, in all of this, we give you great thanks that now we as your children are able to come to you as Father and draw near to you and have the promise of of an eternity in your presence because of the good and finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.